Well, hello everybody and welcome to the fourth episode of Bruisers. I was joined today uh, in studio with Steve Mazalewski from Crown Brewing. He is the brewmaster there. Uh, he brings almost 20, 30 years of experience of brewing, um, and it was an incredible conversation. We talked about what's going on with Crown Brewing moving forward, his background and where he got his start, and all of the cool things that he has seen over the years. So please uh, check out this podcast, and uh, this is my conversation with Steve Mazalewski got into the the brewing thing because Bob and Deb got me into the home brewing side of it mm -hmm. and then that was really kind of what I started doing so I brewed, I brewed probably 15 small batches through kits I got to the point to where it was like I was brewing um, I was like exchanging the hops and I was testing hops and I was upgrading equipment to make sure that the time was faster and then my buddy and I who were doing it my our wives both interjected and were just like so is this a hobby or is this like a profession at this point yeah you know well you could make it quicker than you could drink it all too sometimes I oh yeah I, so I, I didn't even start home brewing like I said until I was professional brewing for about six years you know, I could do it in 310 gallon batches, but to do it in five gallons on a stove, it scared me to death. Um, the, the brewery I worked at actually had a homebrew store, and there was a video you could rent that was how to brew beer at home. And so I like I took it one time and I popped it in my VCR, and this guy was the most lackadaisical idiot around, just messy and didn't care. And I'm like, if this guy could do it, I could do it. <laughs> so I homebrewed for one year. But in that one year, I brewed 50 times. No kidding. Yeah, it was so all grains, five-gallon right. batches. It, I was, it was partial mashes. I was still doing liquid extract, but I was um, straining. Uh, you know, I put my specialty grains and some more base malt in a straining bag and, you know, hold it at 150, 155 to convert it and yank it out and then boil it and add my hops and then, you know, dilute it with water. So, um, but I, at, I was still living at home at the time. And my parents had an old coal cellar in the basement that nice. was my beer storage area because it was like a perfect 62 degrees or something. And I can remember halfway through the year, I was just you know buying at cost cases of bombers um, from work to bottle everything up. And I remember at one point I probably had 20 or 30 cases of, of beer in the in the basement. You know, and my, I remember my mom and dad being like, you know, you're, what, are you going to fill up the whole basement before you drink it all? You know, and, and that's, that's actually where I started learning. Like, if it tastes good, drink it. You know, because there was like certain batches of beer that turned out wonderful. And I'd be like, I don't want to drink it all. I want to save some. And, and you know, it, a, a month or two later, it would be like, oh, man, it doesn't taste as good anymore. Yep. And, and that's where I've always said, don't, you know, don't age your beer drink it you know we, we release beer for a reason it's already been aged well chris from devil's trumpet said the exact same thing did he yeah he said that i we we, we do all that for you don't even worry right. about it drink it buy drink it, it right drink away. it within yeah. a, a couple of weeks or a month yep and it's amazing because there's like there's such a, a market for the the secondary market now with beer and people are storing it left and right. Oh, people are storing it and they're trading it. And I get I get that part of it. And that's something I haven't gotten into. Um, you know, the whole kind of, I don't know if you call it the black market of beer or whatever. <laughs> but that whole trading thing and hoarding thing, I just, you know, I, I don't buy anything unless it's day-coded. 
I was just at a liquor store. Um, my parents live in Shorewood outside Joliet. And, oh, yeah, I've been there. And there was a cool little liquor store. I couldn't, just a little liquor store next to a Chinese restaurant. I couldn't believe the selection of beer they had. It was unbelievable. I mean, like, the whole cooler was craft, a whole aisle of uh, warm craft. But, I, you know, I, I start looking at dates on things because I've been burned so many times where somebody says, oh, you got to try this beer from this brewery. And I'll buy it, and I'm utterly disappointed. I'm like, well, it's probably good five months ago. Um, so I don't buy anything unless it's date coded, and I'm actually lifting up cans and they, they either print it on the side or the bottom. Um, some do the um, the other type; they don't put a date. I hate when they do the best buy, you know, because yeah, yeah. that doesn't say when it was actually packaged, and they're just estimating what they think it's good until. But if it's like six months from the date you're looking at it, you know it's fresh. Yeah. Um, so I actually did pick up one that was Best Buy 1130 or something like that. So I knew it was nice and fresh, and I picked it up and had uh, it had great results. But I also in the same time, I looked, I lifted up another four-pack of 16-ounce cans from an Illinois brewery, and it was canned on uh, 9-8. And I'm like, oh, no, this, this beer is a month, a year old, and it was a New England-style beer. Oh, no. So they're still selling it, but, you know, I think a lot of breweries are doing that. They They – Flood the market. They're selling beer, and they're not following up. They're not. They, they don't care. It's out of their hands. They made money off of it, but somebody, somebody, consumer is going to have a bad experience with their product that's old, and they're going to remember that, and they're going to tell people about that, and they're not going to buy it again. Uh, so that's very scary. Um, well, it, how it, how do you stay on top of it? Well, we stay on top of it. Our, our salesperson um, maintains our accounts, and we're in maybe. 20 or 30. Is that Ben David? Ben David. The man. Uh, 20 or 30 liquor stores in the area. And if it's old, we'll buy it back. You know, we don't want our old product sitting on the shelves. We'll buy it back. Yeah. Or we'll trade it out with fresh. And and Ben David's done a great job of wrapping up some of the older stuff that's been out there. Um, we have, I don't not a lot, but we probably have maybe 10 or 12 cases of bombers that have been bought back in recent months. Um, some of the cans that we did last late last year uh, that are, you know, not going to be that great anymore. Um, so the employees get to take them home and, and drink them. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, what did I, you guys can? Was it the North Pole? Uh, we did that years ago uh, where we had the mobile canners come in. But um, late last year, we started, uh, we bought our, our own single seamer. So a can, a lid seamer that actually crimps the lid on awesome. the can. Awesome. And we started doing some... Uh, you know, small batch canning, basically. But the way we're doing it is, is it's kind of like homebrew style. So it, it's fine if we're in control of it and we're selling it at our pub because, you know, we know it's not going to be old. We know, you know, if there's any problems, we can address them or uh, quality issues, we can address it. But when we started distributing them out to liquor stores, next thing you know, they're sitting out warm on a store shelf. All of our beer is unpasteurized. It's unfiltered. So it, it needs to be refrigerated. It's, it's a fresh product. So, uh, you know, cans aren't going to – the way we're doing it, it wasn't uh, to our quality standards of being able to maintain that high standard of quality. So we, we ended up buying a lot of it back just to uh, – we don't want it out there. Sure. Well, I mean, that's a really proactive way of doing it because I, don't, I know a lot of other ones are not. Oh, no, but a lot of people will uh, flood the market and you have yep. warm beer mm -hmm. sitting out in aisles that – shouldn't be i mean it's it, it you know they're not they're not going through the uh process of having beer that is going to stay good in a can or a bottle for that matter for a long period of time warm 
there's things you can do to address that, but it's usually big equipment. You know, like Three Floyds, uh, when they were bottling, they were you know they were doing bottle conditioning. We're actually kind of sending a, a portion of live. Uh, beer into the bottle and it's kind of conditioning in the bottle as it's sitting around um, now you know they have multi-million dollar equipment you know, they got centrifuges and things where uh, they can maintain their quality a lot better but you know when you're small people it's small little brewery doing a thousand barrels a year it, it's harder to maintain that uh, and you you literally like leave it up to your sales staff to make sure that it's not sitting out and, and date code everything you yeah. know otherwise your customers are going to have a bad experience, and they're always going to remember that. Well, we talked about it on the Facebook uh, Live earlier, but one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the podcast in particular is because out of all of the brewers, especially out of the craze that have happened in the last 10 years, the explosion, we were talking about how it went from potentially 15 to 200 breweries in the state of Indiana alone. Yeah. We've seen it here from 4 to 20-something, yeah. right? And, and especially in the last five it's kind of exploded. I think people are starting to kind of, A, fall in love with the community side of it and then see the money potential, right? That's sure. where it kind of comes sure. down it to. Sure, it kind of draws people in. So uh, your experience, though, is probably one of the probably longest tenures when it comes to the, the industry. Yeah, definitely, yeah. There's not too many people that have been doing it as long as I have. And I didn't realize before off air that you you were a prodigy pretty much, that if you're eight years old and finding and going through – a, a brewery and falling in love with the smell of it because it is an, it is an intoxicating smell. It's it's really a wonderful smell. Um, it, if you don't know what it smells like, sometimes people associate negative things to it. I, I can remember a while back when we first had opened, a group of nurses from the local hospital came in to sit down and have pizza, and we we were boiling wort at the time. And I heard a comment on the way, and like, oh, what's what's that smell? You know, and then about. Three minutes later, they were walking out, and I overheard them saying to each other, like, oh, my God, those poor people that work there, how could they stand it? And one of them like, my eyes are burning. And, they're like, you know, and I'm like thinking, like, you work in a hospital, like, with some of the worst smells you could possibly imagine. This is a wonderful oh, smell. Oh, yeah. But see, that if you don't really know what it smells like, people do associate it sometimes with negative things like farms and things like that. But it is a unique smell. It's a unique smell. And I forgot how much I loved it when I until I stopped by the uh, when you were doing the collab with Meads. Oh, with Misbehaving Meads. Oh, man. I just that smell is just so infectious. I yeah. forgot all about it. Uh, we actually had our intern eat a hop that day. <laughs> the, oh, a hop pellet? Yeah. yeah Wonderful. Yeah, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm still thinking he doesn't have taste in his mouth. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no. So going back to your experience, uh, do you mind telling that story again? Because no, it's sure a really could. awesome one, and I think the people who listen to the podcast would love to hear it. Sure, sure. So um, my my father was a school teacher, seventh and eighth grade social studies in my hometown. I grew up in Berwyn, Illinois, right outside Chicago, and so he had summer vacations off. And our vac vacations as a family used to be uh, camping at campgrounds and touring breweries. So this was in the mid seventies, late seventies. And back then there weren't microbreweries and brew pubs like there are now. These were all you know, fairly large industrial sized uh, regional breweries. So we're, whatever state we would decide to camp at, mostly around the Great Lakes, we would uh, tour the breweries and my dad would get cans for his beer can collection at every brewery that we would visit. So we saw them all around from you know Hams and St. Paul. Milwaukee was always, a, we, we spent a lot of time in Wisconsin um, because they have great camping and also they had great breweries. Uh, Milwaukee always had Miller, but also in the 70s they had Schlitz 
and Blatt's and Pabst, mm-hmm. and we would go to you know see D- Detroit, and we'd go camp in Michigan sometimes, and we'd see Stroh's Brewery in Detroit, Michigan, and another little one called Frankenmuth in Frankenmuth, Michigan. Um, but and these all left huge impressions on me as a young boy. Um, you know, you, you park down the block from a brewery, and you could smell the wort boiling, and you're taking a tour, and tanks go you know, six stories up and they're huge and, you know, it's cold in some of the rooms and it smells like beer. And, you know, there was always a guy in a white lab coat that I assumed was the brewmaster. Uh, you know, he usually had a clipboard in his hand and he's got a pen and he's taking readings and telling people what to do. And I remember being a young boy thinking like, I want to do that when I grow up. And we were in uh, central Wisconsin and there was a, a a fairly smaller regional brewery called Walters in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And we were taking a tour. The brewmaster was giving the tour to uh, our family and another family. And he was just kind of like a burly German guy with uh, overalls on. And he looked at his watch during the tour and he's like, it's time to add the hops. And he's like, hey kid, come here. And he points to me and I'm like, me? And he's like, yeah. He's like, climb this ladder and add this bushel of hops. And I was like, cool. (laughs) So I climb up this ladder and I remember him holding me by the seat of the pants so I don't fall into this vat of boiling liquid. And I could remember dumping this bushel of hops and this boiling wort and the smell hitting me and the steam rising. And it was an angelic moment, an epiphany even, like where I was like, this is what I'm gonna do when I grow up. And you did it. And I did it, I followed followed my dream. So, you know, going through, High school and, and community college, I was saving my money to attend the Siebel Institute of Technology, which is the world-renowned beer school in Chicago, when I got lucky enough to land an assistant apprentice brewing position in my hometown of Berwyn, Illinois, at a place called the Wine Keller Brewery. The, the Wine Keller was the first brewery to open up in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, the owner had uh, owned a, a foremost liquor store. And at that time, and this was in the late 80s, he had 500 bottled beers. I think it was the only place in North America that had that quantity of, of beer. Um, you know, what, it was, what does Benny's have now? They say like 3,000 different beers or sure. something. But back then, this was incredibly <clears throat> special. He, I think at one time he told me he dealt with like 77 different distributors around the country and world to get all these different uh, bottled beers in. And they were all available in the liquor store to go, and they were available at the bar as well. We had a bunch of flagship beers. Our, our flagship beers were, we had a full-time Doppelbach. Like, who does a Doppelbach full-time? Nobody. Especially in the late 80s. Yeah. Uh, a, a Weiss beer, Hefeweiss. And we would filter that Hefeweiss, and we would do a Crystal Weiss. And then we would sour some of that Crystal Weiss and do a Berliner Weiss. And this was um, served mit Schuss, which was a, a, a rim of raspberry syrup in the schooner glass that it was served <laughs> from. So everything was really authentic. We did a, um, a stout, an amber ale, and a pilsner. And those were our flagship beers. And we, our, our, our most popular was a Hefeweiss. So I've, I've, I, mean, I fell in love with these styles you know, I, I was lucky enough to start there days after turning 21, and that was in uh, 1989. Oh wow! So next year will be 30 years in the industry. Unbelievable! Did it make it? Did the brewery make it? The brewery, no, still actually, around? well, he opened up a second location and a third location. The original Berwyn location burned from a fire in 1999. The uh, he had another location in Chicago called River West in the River West neighborhood, which was uh, really young at the time. Um, it was only a few blocks away from the uh, Cabrini Green housing project. And that actually ended up getting strong arm robbed, 
and the boss voluntarily closed it the next day. He said, this is not worth my life. And that left one brewery in Westmont. So I, I kind of knew the end was near. So I ended up um, taking a brewing position at a brewery in Arlington Heights, Illinois, called O'Grady's Brew Pub, a cool little Irish pub. I worked there for six months, and they went bankrupt. Ugh. And I was lucky enough still to find another job in the area. Um, in, in 2000, I ended up working for a place called the Firehouse Brewery, and that was in Morris, Illinois. That's kind of I eighty by Route forty seven. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, okay, yeah. so if you're heading like towards Starve Rock or something, um, I, I brewed there for a year. When one of the brewers I was an assistant for at the Wine Keller opened up the Wild Onion Brewery in Lake Barrington, and he's uh, they had just won the lottery and they just bought a chunk of land and they were going to build a ground up glorious brew pub. And he called me up and said, "How would you like to build our brewery and be our head brewer?" And I said, "Absolutely." Um, so actually on my one year review at the firehouse, I gave them uh, a two months notice. That way it was real nice, you know, you don't want to just burn somebody and stuff. So I gave them two months notice and I, so they had enough time to uh, hire and I could train somebody to take over my position. Oh, that's awesome. I, I ended up working at the uh, Wild Onion uh, for about seven years when they decided to shut the brewery down. Um, they since have reopened another brewery and put in the canning line and all this other stuff without me. I don't know why, but I ended up moving my family to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which was uh, an experience to say the least. And after being there for two years, I knew I needed to be closer to home. And I had a bunch of feelers out and Sam Strupek from Shoreline Brewery was one of those people that I had been friends with. He was getting his brewery op opened. And he said that there was a brewery in Crown Point, Indiana that just lost their brewmaster and they were looking for a new one. And abruptly lost, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, it was kind of like a mutual thing where they, he walked away and they're like, okay, that's fine. And right. um, so they were kind of looking for somebody to fill that position. And I uh, did a couple phone interviews and came in at Christmas time and they made me an offer. And I went back to Arkansas and uh, packed things up and moved my family back way closer to home. Unbelievable. And, and you got that offer on Christmas Eve. I got that offer on Christmas Eve of 08. <laughs> Crazy. So I, I started full time as the brewmaster at Crown Brewing um, January of 09. Wow. And you've been there now Almost going 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, going on 10 years. And so what have you, what is, what has your experience been, especially with that place in particular? Oh, it's been great. Um, it, we've done a lot of cool things. Um, it's really neat to, to, to be in a small brewery. I, I like the brew pub aspect of it um, and have a lot of freedom for recipe formulation um, and creativity. Uh, you know, there, there's been other jobs um, where, you know, you're literally, are, you know, you're brewing what they tell you to brew. And you might get lucky once in a while to do your own recipe kind of thing. Um, so being a pub brewer is, I like it a lot. And if I were to ever, you know, not have that, it would, it would be a big hole, a big missing part. Well, Dave Bryan's like one of the, for me, one of the coolest guys I've had a chance to meet. You know, he's just awesome. And uh, I'm glad that he does give you guys that freedom to be able to create that. And do you use like smaller batch systems to kind of test theories? Absolutely, like yeah, we have a uh, one barrel pilot system that we awesome. do small batches on. And this is to try something on a smaller scale before we do it as a, in a large batch. And large, when I say large, we have a seven barrel brewery. Um, so it's about 210 gallons that we make in a batch of beer. Um, it's actually the smallest brewery of the nine that I've run. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's nice because you go through beer quickly then. Uh, the beer's not sitting around too long. It's not getting old. Um, you know, I've worked at breweries that have 15-barrel systems and 30-barrel fermenters. Uh, you better be doing some high volume if, you know, you're going to be that big and, and really 
you don't want your beer sitting around. Beer is better fresh. Heck yeah. I heard Hannah made a batch. She did. Um, yeah, they did. Uh, I think she was part of the, the test batch, uh, how, how Test Batch one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were actually added uh, orange juice to the beer. No kidding. Yeah, to give it that uh, kind of juiciness. And uh, we're, we're going to do it again, and it'll be even better. It turned out good, but it wasn't exactly how everybody wanted it. But that's the beauty of small test batches is, you know, a one-barrel batch, you're getting two half barrels out of it. It's not going to be around that long. It's going to go, and then it's time to make something else. So one of the things we're utilizing right now with the pilot batch is all of our bartenders are required to come up with a beer style that they want to make. They're working with my assistant, Marco, who is in charge of our pilot program. And, and they Marco's have to, a good guy. Yeah, they have to come up with a recipe, and then the bartenders come in and help brew it, and then the bartenders come in and help transfer the beer and get it ready for tap. And, and it gets the, the bartenders more actively involved with the knowledge of brewing and the processes involved and the ingredients involved. And plus, you know, we get a lot of people that love beer coming in, obviously, a lot yeah. of home brewers. So now those bartenders can uh, talk the same language, basically, as uh, the customers that are coming in. And it's really uh, a good educational thing. Well, nothing's more frustrating than going to a brewery and then the waiting staff has no idea about it. Well, any the, of the, the problem we run into is the, uh, the carriage court side, which is a separate business, mm -hmm. even though we operate as one out of the same building. You know, they got a lot of young kids that are sometimes, you know, summer seasonal help or. Sure, you know, they're in they, from college. And they're not actively involved in, in the brewery. So. We are. Uh, you can't have kids on the bar side, unfortunately. So if you come in with your family, you're more than welcome to. You have to sit on the pizza side or outside. Okay. Yeah, we have a bunch of flagship beers that we do. Our flagship beers, our special forces, is our by far our most popular. Yep. Uh, we do our industrial porter, and from that we cold brew coffee and we uh, do a Java porter. Uh, I want to say for the better part of the last year, we've had a White Russian Java porter on full time. Uh, very interesting. It's got all the flavors of a white Russian, and we call it the dude mm -hmm. uh, after the big. That Lebowski. seems very popular with it, everybody. It is. It, we we sell more Java Porter than Industrial Porter, but they're basically two for one on that. The the, the Industrial Porter is the base beer of that. Sure. Um, and then we do our Maisy Cream Ale, which is our lightest offering. Uh, I like to call it a training wheels beer. Uh, we're not serving Miller Lite or anything like that at our pub. So if somebody comes in that is unfamiliar with craft beer. Uh, our bartenders are trained to steer them in the direction of Maisy Cream Ale. And seven out of 10 times, they're gonna get a pint of that and say, and love it. Yep. Uh, gotta get them fresh though, I cannot stress enough. And most of these places are dating their cans, which uh, like I said earlier, I won't, I won't buy something unless it's date coded. I've been burned too many times. Mm -hmm. And when I go to a liquor store and I'm looking for something, um, especially if I go to Binnie's, Binnie's is notorious. I mean, they have probably the, the best beer selection you could ever find. But when you start going through the shelves and looking at dates on bottles, some of them have been there for a long, long time. Sure. And so what I usually do is look for new arrival stickers or I ask somebody that actually is in the know, what did you just get in recently? And I was actually at Benny's earlier in June, and I had found some hailstorm that was literally canned three days before. Perfect. And it, we're, it, it made it up to uh, Lake Zurich in Illinois th in, in three days. I couldn't believe it. It was one of the best New Englands I ever had. Awesome. Well, and that's a, probably the biggest problem with that style is just getting it when it's fresh, too. It, it ages away quickly. Um, even our uh, intergalactic juice fist that's on tap right now, uh, two weeks ago, just 
brilliant, nice and juicy, great aroma. And now a lot of the aroma has aged away. It, it's still a delicious, juicy, good beer, but it, it, it's lost a little bit of that uh, that aroma character side. So beers constantly change. I mean, week by week, they're going to be different. So you're, uh, you, I mean, with your experience, with your like, uh, I know you're a critic. And you're and you're you're appreciator of the beer. Yes. Um, what are some of the things that you look for when it comes to like your philosophy of the next batch, or what 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 like, executes it as being solid? Is it staying true to the style? Is it being, uh, I guess, uh, modern and forward trending? Not not, not necessarily. Um, I I kind of go by. There's one of the breweries out there has a motto of about like we we make the beer we want to drink and and sell the rest something to that. So we you know obviously we're gonna make what people want to buy too. You know and that's one of the reasons we kind of had to do a New England just because they are hugely popular and uh, we're never gonna be on the same level as a lot of the people that started this off or uh, have the following. Uh, but it's a nice offering for our customers. Uh, I've never really been a true to style brewer. Uh, you could make great beer and not fit certain categories. I mean, look at Three Floyds, for example. I mean, they are world-renowned. People go nuts over their beer. They love their beer. But a lot of their styles of beer that they make that are phenomenal and people go nuts over aren't going to judge well in certain categories. Is there any beer that you're extremely proud of over your time here that you've made? You know, uh, the one we just are drinking now, the Alcoholica, um, early on, they had a, a name of Alcoholica. Our, our one former owner was a huge Metallica fan. Uh, <laughs> so we had a lot of Metallica-themed beers. Kill 'em Ale uh, is one that was, was popular. We did a few other uh, Metallica-type beers. And he always wanted to do a beer called Alcoholica. Well, an Alcoholica to me is a very strong beer, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, so I didn't want to do mm-hmm. – uh, the first thing that came to my mind was Russian Imperial Stout. Well, you know, at that time, everybody was, you know, Dark Lord. Everybody's got to have Dark Lord, and that's a Russian Imperial Stout. And I, didn't, I wanted to do something completely opposite but still strong. So I decided to do, uh, at the time, a, a blonde Doppelbach. One of my top five favorite beers in the world is uh, Capital Brewing in Middleton, Wisconsin. They're uh, really lager-intensive, maybe not as much as they used to be, but uh, they do a, a blonde Doppelbach, which when you, when you get it, it's just unbelievable it's you're talking 7.5 percent alcohol it's a lager mm. incredibly drinkable just malty and delicious so we started doing that as our alcoholica but i would make it even beefier um i always try and shoot for eight eight point one or two percent which is really big for a lager um, oh yeah lager, lagers are finicky beers because they ferment colder uh, around 50 to 55 degrees uh they have a longer aging process longer fermentation process they tie tanks up a long time that's why not a lot of breweries do lagers because they you know you can crank two or three batches of ale out in that same tank as it would to to do one batch of lager um but this was a huge hit from early on maybe not as big as i thought it had obviously it didn't have like the dark lord impact where people are lining up for it uh but one of those beers that i've always been really proud of it's hard because it's like especially seasonal you've got to it really comes down to marketing sometimes you know, it and does, so you've yes. got to get ahead of yeah, you got to get ahead of it. Well, it's amazing, like you know, these people that have Oktoberfest beers out already or pumpkin ale beers oh, out yeah. already. You know, they're out there. Like, when, when did they make this in June? Right. You know, you're right. making your pumpkin ale in June. That doesn't even sound right. You know. Well, through strategy, I guess being the first to the market's better than being last. But. I guess, I guess, but it, it just seems everything seems to be coming out earlier and earlier and yeah. earlier. Everybody's rushing their beer out to get to be the first on the market because I, I tell you what, I'm not even going to think about drinking a pumpkin ale or Oktoberfest until after Labor. 
Same here. Same yeah. here. And I'm, I, the one the one uh, trend that I would like to see, and I'm spearheading this, I say this in every podcast, but I, I'm a huge fan of the White Stouts. Okay. And we don't see, you just don't see them very often. No, you don't. We, we, we actually have plans of doing one this, this Christmas. Oh, yeah. no way. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. What's that going to kind of embark on? Like, what kind of like, flavors are we talking oh, about? Oh, we're you know, going for the coffee and chocolatey flavors, obviously. And uh, uh, we, we've done some pilots of it in the past that were hugely successful, and we just kind of forgot about it. Um, so, cool. our, our big winter beer has been Winter Warlock. And Great it's, beer. It's, it's like a spiced brown ale. And. We, we've noticed, again, in, in recent years, it's not as popular as it was. Probably just because there's so many other choices out there. That, you know, It doesn't mean it's a bad beer. It's just one of those beers that it, there's a certain amount of people that are going to drink it all the time and come yep. for it and, and come to the brewery specifically for it because it is a great beer. But we, we don't need to make – like I, I used to make five, six batches of it, and that will get us through uh, – I tried to have it on tap until uh, Valentine's Day-ish. You know, it's a winter beer. Um, so this year, I think we're only going to do one or two batches of it and try other um, winter seasonal beers um, to kind of uh, change it up a little bit. That's fun. And see, that, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about with Crown that feels like, we talked about this off air, that feels like it's almost like a new era has kind of begun there. I don't know how else to explain it other than I feel like the experimentation is getting more aggressive. Um, it feels like the the flagship beers that are the flagship beers are staying the flagship beers for the reasons they should be, you know. Yeah. And there's and I, I didn't feel that way five years ago, and I don't know if it's because of the distance that I had with it or what, but it just feels like the, and it could be just because I'm I'm literally there almost yeah, once you're, a you're week around now. a lot more yeah yeah yeah, but it just feels like you guys are always just moving to the next beer at this point, and it's really exciting to see because it's 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 adding new flavor and life to it yeah yeah and it's nice too you know, like i said we're, we're, we're a smaller brewery so the, the batches are cranking out faster than ever before um you know it's hard to keep up but we, we always want to do the next thing too like what what can we do next As a lot of times i'm ready to order grain for empty fermenters and i'm asking other people what well, what do you think i should make you know yeah, yeah. just because we're, we're kind of caught up on our regulars let's do something different where do you see it going moving forward? What would you like to see happen with Crown and your brewing style? What would you? What would some things you'd like to see? I I, I mean, they have a whole jail project going. I don't know how in depth I can go about that, but they there's uh, always we, some project yeah, we, going we, on over there. We, we rent out the the front half of the old Lake County Jail uh, for storage right now. Um, we're we're planning on doing a Halloween party in there, which means we between now and then we have to basically clear it out to host a party. Um, I will never go in there. Oh, it's cool. I've been in there one time, and according to the psychic I had at my party, I took something home with me. No, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, they do ghost tours in there and stuff. I know. We, went, we, took, know? we took a medium, and Did we you? went in there. It was the exact anniversary of Dillinger's Escape. Really? And uh, it was one of the craziest nights I've ever had. Huh. I'll never do it See, again. See, I'm, I'm, I'm in and out. We were not in the jail-jail part. We're just in the front part. That, that I believe it actually held, like, the squad cars and paddy wagons. Okay. Um, when, the, okay. when the jail was open. But, we're I mean, we're in the same building. I've never felt uncomfortable or felt like somebody was watching me. Um, but I, I'm not really in tune with the supernatural. But the only weird thing that ever did happen to me was actually in the brewery itself, um, I had gotten to work early. Uh, it was probably about 6.30 in the morning. I was the only one in the building. <laughs> and I was bending over a floor drain, like rinsing out a bucket or something. And somebody said, hey. And I, I was like, oh, Zach got here early or something. I look up and nobody was there. And I got goosebumps. I was like, oh, my God, what was that? And this was 
a week and a half after um, there was three of us, two people were in the bar and I was in the brewery, and the two people in the bar uh, came back and said, who are you talking to? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, who are you talking to? We heard, we heard you talking to somebody. And I'm like, I haven't said a word. And they heard a conversation going. So that was like a week and a half before um, <sighs> I heard somebody say, hey. But, you know, I, I've slept in the building before. I've, you know, when, when I first started there, I was um, just moved back from Arkansas, staying at my in-law's house in Barrington, and I would um, spend two nights a week there on a blow-up mattress, and I've never experienced anything. Oh, wow. Never seen shadows or anything. Yeah, so we went in there, I would say it was around 8.30, and it was really cold which was just natural for the time period. I mean, it was like March, right? And we're in there, it's freezing. We get, and we spend about five hours there. Wow. And so we have, we're with a group of 15, we have cameras, we have the whole thing. Uh And uh, from the second I got there, I was experiencing things. And everyone else, I was with a group of 14 who'd probably say they didn't experience anything. That's what's so weird about it. Yeah, well, you could be in tune too. You know, my, my brother can walk into a house and be like, this house is haunted, I could tell. And then really? he, oh yeah, and he, he would talk to the, the owner of the house. They're like, "Oh yeah, we've had some, you know, poltergeist activity or whatever." And I, I, I never have been in tune with that. Yeah, well, I don't want to be. <laughs> That's a dangerous game, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I was gonna go kind of lead it back to. There's two questions I have for you. The first one is: is what are some of the things that you're seeing locally that you really love? Whether it's a specific type of beer, whether it's a brewery, what do you, what do you kind of, what would you say like is awesome? What, what is awesome of what we're all doing is, I think what's awesome is we're making people aware of what beer is. Um, in Northwest Indiana, you know, especially when we opened, was such an untapped market. Yeah. You know, I mean, you had Three Floyds, obviously, a huge anchor for the area. Uh, or But if you wanted good beer, you had to go somewhere. Like, to, either if you weren't going to Floyd's, you were traveling to Chicago or Michigan. You know, Michigan has how many breweries now? Like 450 or something crazy? Crazy. I can't even believe it. So we had a very untapped market. But that being said, people wanted beer, but they had to go get it. But then there's that other whole percentage of the beer-drinking population that had no clue what craft beer is. And I think the thing I'm most proud of with this area and what I love about this area is the amount of knowledge that we've brought to regular people we're talking regular people whether they didn't drink beer at all or they were coors light drinkers um they are now venturing out and trying different things and we're making people realize that there's more to beer than a light lager yeah and and you know that's one of the hardest things is when crown starts up it's not like there's a a million other craft breweries around here you're really educating the audience on top of providing good beer that's exactly right very tough that is not an easy task to do, and especially with beer in particular, because I think most beer drinkers would admit, honestly, that they didn't love beer the first time they tried it. Probably, yeah. It's an acquired yeah. taste. Sure. You know, and so whether it's like your first one, I know my first real um, like uh, love for it was Deal with the Devil 18th Street. Okay. That beer, that's, yeah. and it was like right at the front end of the Citra Craze, and that got me into it all. You know, and so like I love them dark. I love them light. I mean, for me, it's no big deal. And that's what I'm hoping this kind of next this craze is kind of creating is like it's educating the audience and taking people, giving people the acquired taste to really move on and really experiment now because yes. like the porters are it's such an underrated genre of beer. Well, yeah, you know, it, in flavors change or people's palates change over years too. Like when I started brewing, I true I hated dark beer. I used to call it burned beer. 
you know, and it did malt flavors that were harsh and a, a kind of tannic and astringent. Um, man, I love a good dark beer now. Oh, yeah. You know, your flavors change. I, and, and I think people's tastes change over time, too. And that's why we try and offer, I always like to say, we like we try and offer a beer for everybody that's going to walk through our front door. You know, if you're a Miller Lite drinker, try our Maisie Cream Ale. You're going to sure. like it. It's light and refreshing. A lot of times we do a Mexican lager. Uh, people enjoy that. If you want something strong or barrel-aged, a lot of times we'll have a barrel-aged beer on tap. You want something in between, we got lots of beers in between. We have hoppy beers. We got fruity beers. Uh, we're, we're trying to please a, a wide variety of people. Where there's other breweries that you go to where it, a lot of the beers are one-sided, you know, either extreme hoppy or extreme strong. Yep. Um, I, I'm so glad that we're, uh, as a whole, getting away from the extreme side of, of beer. Um, I, I think one of the best things in the industry has been the session beers Love or under 5% beers, uh, especially as uh, blood alcohol content in states lower you know they're talking there's a whole push about talking to lower it to 0.05 i mean you could literally, literally most some people can have one beer and you're legally drunk that's yep. ridiculous ridiculous so i i really like the fact of, of sessionable beers i can remember doing a seminar with um uh, uh lewis universe uh, dr lewis from uc davis california and this was probably eight or ten years ago saying and this was in the height of double, triple, imperial, double imperial, everybody's, you know, the stronger, the hoppier, the better. He said, the, the profitability of your beer is in the last bottle of fridge in the refrigerator. If somebody buys a four pack of something, some barley wine that's 14%, you're gonna have one, maybe two, and that's it. You're gonna switch to something else. But if you have a delicious, drinkable, light German lager, a Helles, and you drink five of them and there's only one left, you're gonna say, oh my God, I need more of that. I'm almost out. And he was his push back then was for easy drinking sessionable beers where you could have multiple and still pronounce your name and not get up get pulled over. Sure. Well, that's a that's a good point because that that for a while there I felt like every new brewery I was going into was like the the bitter the IPA the better. And, and there's always going to be a, bitter- a market and fans of that. And I, I know Crown Brewing's got knocked in the past. I, I you, know, you read the reviews or whatever, and you know somebody like oh my god they have a beer that's three point two percent alcohol on tap, and they call themselves a brew pub. You know, yeah, yeah, we, we're. You you try it. It's actually quite. You delicious. have to have those beers. But some people are if it's not extreme and hoppy or super strong in alcohol they're they're not even gonna they, they think it's a waste of time crazy well yeah. i know speaking of crazy beers you guys are doing something really cool this year which i want to plug um you've got the 10 year anniversary which the party was awesome so that was that was a great time that was fun that was probably one of the drunkest i've been at one of those oh, fests boy. yeah that was tough that uh that that, that uber bear Robo Uber Robo, Bear. That was insane. That yeah, we, we, we do an Imperial Stout barrel-aged um, uh, Journeyman Featherbone Barrels. Uh, turns out phenomenal. Yeah. We, we, we still have a little bit left, and I'm really interested to see uh, how that's going to taste. There's a, like, a little bit left in the keg from that night that I haven't put on tap yet. Oh, nice. Yeah, great beer. And that one snuck up on me pretty quick. And the other thing is, is I wanted to kind of talk about the um, doing the 10-year anniversary. You guys are doing 10 collabs with 10 different breweries. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to attempt to do 10 collaboration brews with 10 different breweries this year. Um, so far, we've done Forefathers and Velpo. We've done Misbehaving Meads and mm-hmm. Velpo. Uh, we've done um, Burnham Brewing in Michigan City. Uh, we just brewed with St. John Malt Brothers last week. I saw the pictures. That's and cool. And we did Off Square Brewery. Uh, the week before, 
and we have a few more in the, in the lineup. So uh, we're about halfway through, and we got about four or five months to uh, do another four or five. So awesome! Yeah. Anything to look forward to other than than the the collaborations? Well, yeah, we have, we have a couple events coming up which are really cool. Um, September eighth, we're doing our halfway to St. Patrick's Day party, awesome. which uh, has been huge in the past. I mean, it's just a reason to come out and drink beer. It really is all it is, <laughs> you know. But we're gonna actually do some green beer for that. They're gonna do corned beef and cabbage pizza like they do on St. <sighs> Patty's Day. So that's always gonna be fun. That's Saturday, September eighth. On Wednesday, September 12th, we're doing a really cool brewmaster dinner with Asparagus's sister restaurant, which is called Siam Marina, and that's in Tinley Park. It's going to be five courses, uh, welcoming pint, commemorative glass. Um, That's 55 bucks. That's on Wednesday, September 12th. Awesome. We're also doing our Pumpkin Fest at the Lake County Fairgrounds uh, this year. It's September 29th. This is uh, something we started last year. Last year, we were caught off guard. We had no idea the popularity of this event. So this year, we're going to be way more prepared. Um, this is going to be a family-friendly event. It's a $10 to get in. Kids are free. There's going to be lots of activity for the kids, jumpy houses, face painting, uh, activities, things like that. We're going to have food vendor, vendor trucks there. Uh, there's going to be bands playing. Um, and this is from 5 to 9 on September 29th. Uh, and of course, we're going to have plenty of our pumpkin ale there. Awesome. And and then, of course, the big event that we do um, all year besides uh, everything else is <laughs> Crown Point's Oktoberfest. Now, I believe the new venue should be open. Is that correct? Do you know I about that? I do not know yet. Okay, because yeah. I, I saw them. They had lights on today and the structures up. So just, um, I guess it would be just west of the square, would you call it? On, yeah, yeah. Is that, is that West Street? I think so, yeah. Right. It's the stop sign on the west side of the square. Yeah. So they um, Bulldog Park is what it's called. Bulldog Park? Yeah. Okay. So if that all goes, it's going to be quite an event. Um, the busiest, the most beer I've ever sold in my career was one of Crown Point's Oktoberfests, uh, where I think I went through something like 47 or 49 half barrels of beer in five really? hours. The taps never shut off. It's literally somebody's just pouring beer nonstop. The keg blew. You change a keg, you do it again. Um, it's fun. Uh, it's extreme, but uh, this is going to be fun because the last few years uh, we've had really inclement weather. Uh, we've actually been shut down by 6 o'clock, um, but this year I know Mother Nature is going to cooperate with us. That's uh, October 6th, Saturday. We'll have to put that down in the book. Put that down, Josh. Crown Point Oktoberfest. That's going to be a good time. Awesome. So you got Pumpkin Fest. you got Oktoberfest. you got Halfway to September Fest. You've got, <laughs> yeah. You've got the Brewer's Dinner, which is really cool. So we're, yeah, we're always doing something. Oh yeah! So well, that's keep a- up with us on Facebook and and uh, cheers. Cool, Steve. Thanks for coming in. All right, really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to check out any of their stuff, check out the Crown Brewing across all platforms. And I, th- Steve's, if the doors open, you're generally there. I'm generally there. Yeah. If yeah. The doors open. Uh, yell, hey, Steve, and say hi. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for coming in, and uh, cheers. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Who in it now?